Chapter thirty of the Life of Thomas, Lord Cochrane, tenth Earl of Dundonald, completing the Autobiography of a Seaman, Volume two, by Henry Richard Fox Bourne and others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Eighteen fifty one to eighteen sixty. When in June eighteen fifty one he returned to England and surrendered his office as Commander in Chief of the North American and Indian Squadron, the Earl of Dundonald was in his seventy sixth year that he was still young and vigorous in mind is sufficiently shown by the illustrations of his inventive genius and philanthropic earnestness that have been given in the last chapter the most striking proof of this however so far as he was allowed to prove it has yet to be given very soon after his return he sought to impress upon sir james graham then first lord of the admiralty under the earl of aberdeen's administration the value of his secret war plans and before long a special reason for advocating their adoption arose their efficacy had been frequently acknowledged by the highest authorities but as england was at peace nothing more than an acknowledgment was made the outbreak of war with russia induced lord dundonald to bring them forward again in eighteen fifty three at first sir james graham declined to entertain the subject the government believed that russia would be easily and properly defeated by the ordinary means of warfare and therefore contented itself with them in this decision lord dundonald acquiesced perforce but on its appearing that the fight would be harder than had been anticipated he again claimed a hearing for his proposals believing that by their acceptance he could not only bring his own career as a british seaman to a glorious termination but also a yet dearer object to him by doing so render inestimable service to his country in this spirit he wrote again to sir james graham on the twenty second of july eighteen fifty four important aggressive enterprises he said being now suspended by russia whose armies on the defensive may indefinitely prolong the war and thereby expose our country to perilous consequences resulting from protracted naval cooperation i am desirous through you respectfully to offer for the consideration of her majesty's cabinet ministers a simple yet effective plan of operations showing that the maritime defences of kronstadt however strong against ordinary means of attack may be captured and their red-hot shot and incendiary missiles prepared for the destruction of our ships turned on those they protect a result of paramount importance now that the forces in the black sea have been diverted from the judiciously contemplated attack on sebastopol compared to the success of which any secondary enterprise in the baltic would prove of very small importance to the successful result of the war permit me therefore in the event of my plans being approved unreservedly to offer my services without command or authority except over the very limited means of attack the success whereof cannot fail in its consequences to free and ensure perhaps for ever all minor states from russian dominion personal acquaintance with vice-admiral sir charles napier and rear-admiral chads warrants my conviction that no feeling of rivalry could exist save in the most zealous performance of the service sir james graham's reply was complimentary you offer for the consideration of her majesty's government he wrote on the twenty sixth of july a plan of operations by which the maritime defences of kronstadt may in your opinion be captured and in the most handsome manner you declare your readiness to direct and superintend the execution of your plan if it should be adopted when the great interests at stake are considered and when the fatal effects of a possible failure are duly regarded it is apparent that the merits of your plan and the chances of success must be fully investigated and weighed by competent authority the cabinet unaided can form no judgment in this matter and the tender of your services is most properly made by you dependent on the previous approval of your plan 
The question is a naval one, into which professional considerations must enter largely. Naval officers, therefore, of experience and high character, are the judges to whom, in the first instance, this question ought to be submitted. Let me, therefore, ask you, before I take any further step, whether you are willing, in strict confidence, to lay your whole plan before Sir Brian Martin, Sir William Parker, and Admiral Barclay, whom, from his place at this board, is my first naval adviser. If you do not object to this measure, or to any of the naval officers whom I have named, I should be disposed to add Sir John Burgoyne, the head of the engineers, on whose judgment I place great reliance. I am sure you will not regard this mode of treating your proposal as inconsistent with the respect which I sincerely entertain for your high professional character, resting on past services of no ordinary merit, which I have never failed to recognise, but my duty on this occasion prescribes caution and deliberate care, and you will do justice to the motives by which this answer to your request is guided. End letter. To this suggestion Lord Dundonald readily acceded, and his secret war plans were once more referred to a committee of investigation. Nothing, however, was gained by this step. I have received, wrote Sir James Graham on the 15th of August, the report of the committee of officers, of whom, with your consent, the plan for the attack on Kronstadt was submitted. On the whole, after careful consideration, they have come to the unanimous conclusion that it is inexpedient to try experiments in present circumstances. They do full justice to your lordship, and they expressly state that, if such an enterprise were to be undertaken, it could not be confided to fitter or abler hands than yours, for your professional career has been distinguished by remarkable instances of skill and courage, in all of which you have been the foremost to lead the way, and by your personal heroism you have gained an honourable celebrity in the naval history of this country. Letter ends. That letter was disappointing to Lord Dundonald, but as the value of his plans was not disputed, he hoped that he might yet be allowed to put them in execution. Be pleased, he said, in his reply to Sir James Graham, to accept the sincere assurance of the high estimation in which I hold the kind and favourable expression of your sentiments towards me. It is indeed gratifying to perceive that the experienced admirals to whom you referred the professional consideration of my secret plan have not expressed any doubt as to its practicability. The report of the admirals, however, had as unfavourable an effect as could have resulted had they declared openly against the project. Week followed week without any successful issue to the efforts of the Baltic fleet, and added to Lord Dundonald's chagrin at not being permitted to achieve the desired success, was his distress at finding unmerited blame thrown by the government, and by nearly all classes of the public, upon a brave and skilful seaman for not doing what, with the means at his disposal, it was impossible for him to do. Admiral Sir Charles Napier had failed, through no fault of his own, in the project of attacking Kronstadt, a fortress of almost unrivalled strength, and by reason of the shallow water surrounding it, unapproachable by the heavy line of battleships and frigates, which constituted all his force. And during the months of his necessary inactivity, and after his return to England, Lord Dundonald was almost his only defender. In justice to Admiral Napier, against whom the indignant dissatisfaction of the nation is said to be directed, he wrote in a letter to the Morning Post on the 21st of September, permit me to say that success could not have attended the operations of ships against stone batteries firing red-hot shot, however easily unresisting walls may be leisurely demolished. There is but one means to place these parties on an equal footing, and that I confidentially laid before the government. The unreasoning portion of the public, he wrote to Sir James Graham on the 11th of November, have made an outcry against old admirals as if it were essential that they should be able to clear their way with a broadsword. But, my dear Sir James, were it necessary, which it is not, 
that I should place myself in an armchair on the poop, with each leg on a cushion, I will undertake to subdue every insular fortification at Kronstadt within four hours from the commencement of the attack. And Sebastopol, he argued, could be as easily captured if he were only allowed to put his plans in operation. But it was not allowed. Nothing new can be attempted at the present moment, answered Sir James Graham. Winter will put an end to all active operations in the Baltic, and I still venture to hope that at Sebastopol our arms will be triumphant. Letter ends. Lord Dundonald, though pained not so much on his own account as in the interests of the nation, at the way in which his officers were treated, persevered in making them. It was now too late in the season to effect anything in the Baltic, but the siege of Sebastopol was being carried on without any immediate prospect of success, and he yearned with all the ardour that he had displayed half a century before for an opportunity of rendering success both certain and immediate. To this end, he wrote again to Sir James Graham, and also for the first time to the Earl of Aberdeen on the 30th of December. The pertinacious resistance made at Sebastopol and the possibility of events that may still further disappoint expectation, he said to Sir James, have induced me to address Lord Aberdeen, saying that if it is the opinion of the Cabinet, or of those whom they consult on military affairs, that failing the early capture of Sebastopol, the British army may be in danger, I offer to the discernment of the Cabinet my still secret plans of attack, whereby the garrisons would be expelled from the forts or annihilated in defiance of numerical force, and possession obtained at least during sufficient time to enable the chief defences to be blown up and the harbour fleet to be destroyed. If you will so far favour me, I should be gratified by having an opportunity of demonstrating to your strong mind, free from professional bias, the fact that combustible ships may be not only placed on a parity with stone forts, fitted to fire red-hot shot, but secured from injury more effectually than if encased in iron. Letter ends. Sir James Graham's answer was, like its forerunners, complimentary, but nothing more. I can never cease, he wrote, to do justice to your patriotic desire to serve your country, which is evinced by your desire to encounter in your own person the dangers attendant on your experiment, and not to transfer the hazard of the enterprise to others. But to the enterprise itself he would give no sanction. Your plans, he said, by my desire, were submitted to the consideration of the most competent naval and military officers, whose impartial judgment cannot be impunged, and, on the whole, they did not recommend the trial of the experiment which you are anxious to make. Neither Lord Aberdeen nor I can venture to place our individual opinions in opposition to a recorded judgment of the highest authority on a question which is purely professional. I see no advantage, therefore, in renewing the discussion with you at the present moment. Letter ends. Had the impartial judgment by which Sir James Graham held himself bound been adverse to the principle of Lord Dundonald's plans, or declared them to be anything more than inexpedient in present circumstances, more weight might have been attached to it, but even then he could have pointed to the opposite verdict, given in 1847, by other judges quite as impartial and competent, who, while objecting to part of them on the score of their deadly efficacy, had officially announced their belief in the applicability of another part, the part of which Lord Dundonald now proposed to make most use, and recommended its adoption when the opportunity of employing it may occur. He therefore refused to be thwarted in his efforts to render to his country the great service that he considered to be in his power, and Sir Charles Napier's removal from the command of the Baltic fleet in January 1855 gave him an opportunity of offering to use that power under conditions that would relieve the Admiralty of all direct responsibility in the event of his failure. I am much gratified, he said in another letter to Sir James Graham, to learn that Her Most Gracious Majesty has been pleased to reserve the high dignity of Admiral of the Fleet 
as a reward for services. Under this impression, permit me to solicit the favour of being allowed to contend for that distinction, not by reference again to opinions, which may prove fallacious, but by actual experimental proof of the safety and facility of assailing fortifications by my secret plans. By them, the damage and loss of life sustained by the Allied squadron in their late attack on the fortifications of Sebastopol might have been partly, if not wholly, averted, and probably a tenfold destruction inflicted on the enemy. If this is admitted, and I do not think it can be disputed, I hope you will allow me to demonstrate the general applicability of these simple, comparatively costless, and in my opinion infallible means of annihilating the power of all kinds of batteries that can be approached to windward within half a mile. These plans have been entertained and pondered over by me during forty years, and now again I offer to explain, to test, and to put them in execution. Letter ends. Sir James Graham's answer was very terse. I have had the honour, he wrote on the 23rd of January, of receiving your lordship's letter, in which you tender your services to take command of the Baltic fleet. I consider the tender highly honourable to you, but I cannot give you any other assurance. End quote. No other assurance would have been of any avail. The Earl of Aberdeen's cabinet, having lost the confidence of the country, was dissolved almost immediately after the letter was written, to be replaced by an administration in which Lord Palmerston was Premier and Sir Charles Wood First Lord of the Admiralty. To Lord Palmerston, the Earl of Dundonald wrote on the 13th of February. The high position of our country being at stake on the result of the war, he said, and our long-established naval renown pledged on the successful conduct of affairs in the Baltic, I addressed to my kind friend, Lord Lansdowne, who has been long conversant with the objects which, by his advice, I now offer to your lordship's notice as First Minister of the Crown, co-jointly, if you judge proper, with that of the Cabinet over which you preside. He then briefly described the principle of his secret plan, adding, I respectfully offer to execute this plan, and answer for its success against Kronstadt and against all minor strongholds in the Baltic. Letter ends. Four weeks elapsed before the letter was answered. In the meanwhile, Lord Dundonald, beginning to despair of a satisfactory hearing from any Minister of State, unless he was induced thereto by a popular demand, addressed a petition to the House of Commons, urging the importance of his plans and praying for a searching inquiry to ascertain whether the aforesaid secret plans are capable speedily, certainly, and cheaply to surmount obstacles which our gallant, persevering, and costly armies and fleets have failed to accomplish. His reasons for doing so he explained in a letter addressed to the Times on the 10th of March. Peace, he there said, being desirable not only for the interests of our country, but for those of the world at large, and the negotiations now pending being doubtless injuriously influenced by the obstinate resistance of Sebastopol, which could be overcome in a day, and the impossibility of successfully attacking Kronstadt by naval means, which might be speedily reduced, I have drawn up a petition to Parliament in order that secrecy and silence on my part, and deficiency of information on that of the public, may no longer prove injurious to the success of our arms. Hostilities having proceeded so far, assuredly, it is more expedient to reduce a restless nation to a third or fourth-rate power than be ourselves reduced. Let not my motive be mistaken, I have no wish to command a fleet of a hundred gun ships, or to attack first-rate fortresses by encased batteries or steam gunboats. That which I desire is first secretly to demonstrate to competent persons the efficiency of my plans, and then to obtain authority during eight or ten days of fine weather to put them in execution. The means I contemplate are simple, cheap, and safe. They would spare thousands of lives, millions of money, great havoc, and uncertainty of results. Their consequences might and probably would affect the emancipation of Poland and give freedom to the usurped territories of Sweden. Those who judge unfavourably of all aged naval commanders assuredly do not reflect 
that the useful employment of the energies of thousands and tens of thousands of men can best be developed and directed by a mind instructed by long observation matured by reflection an advantage to which physical power that could clear its way by a broadsword can bear no comparison my unsupported opinion in regard to a naval enterprise in eighteen o nine proved to be correct every other undertaking in the british service and as commander-in-chief in chile peru brazil and greece was successful and so would the protracted and unaccomplished undertaking so injurious to the result of negotiation have succeeded had i possessed sufficient influence to be patiently listened to readers note letter ends the petition aroused much interest among the public but was unheeded by the house of commons and therefore produced very slight effect on the ministry my published petition wrote lord dundonald to viscount palmerston on the seventeenth of march has brought me numerous letters and amongst others a communication i believe from high authority that if i do know any means whereby to spare the slaughter that must take place on storming sebastopol i ought to make it known i wish i could impart to your lordship what i feel under the present circumstances and how anxiously i desire that a speedy decision may succeed the lingering delays that i have so long endured a few days after that chiefly through the assistance of his friend lord brougham lord dundonald obtained an interview with lord palmerston at which he further detailed his plans and urged that they should be promptly employed in hastening a conclusion of the war with russia to lord palmerston he also wrote again on the thirty first of march it has occurred to me he said that the supposed inhumanity of my plans may have caused the use of the word inexpedient in the report of the commission applied in july last by the admiralty and may even now influence the decision of the cabinet perhaps another view may have been taken of the consequences of divulging my plans as regards the security of this kingdom letter ends to these possible objections he urged that no conduct that brought to a speedy termination a war which might otherwise last for years and be attended by terrible bloodshed and numerous battles could be called inhuman and that the most powerful means of averting invasion and indeed all future war would be the introduction of a method of fighting which rendering all vigorous defence impossible would frighten every nation from running the risks of warfare at all those arguments appear to have had some weight but after further correspondence lord palmerston's government like all other governments to which they had been offered refused to put the plans in execution further evidence in their favour was obtained from some eminent scientific men and it was put beyond dispute that although they might not have such deadly efficacy as lord dundonald anticipated on which point the critics spoke with hesitation they could not fail if properly applied in producing very important results but it was all in vain all that lord palmerston would agree to was to have the experiment tried on a small scale at sebastopol and by two engineer officers who were to be instructed in their work by lord dundonald lord dundonald consented to the trial if it were conducted by his son captain the honourable arthur cochrane r n but this was not agreed to and the whole project fell to the ground at that result lord dundonald was hardly more disappointed than was a large section of the english public friends and strangers soldiers sailors newspaper writers and merchants wrote to him from london edinburgh liverpool birmingham belfast and all other parts of the kingdom urging that if the enterprise was not undertaken by government it should be executed by means of a private subscription i am perfectly convinced wrote one that you can do all the injury to the russian fortifications that you say you can do if miserable jealousy at the admiralty refuses you the means take them from those who like myself are very proud to be your countrymen i am not a rich man but i shall gladly subscribe one hundred pounds to any scheme that you will propose and carry out yourself if your lordship will appeal to the country wrote another in less than a week you will receive subscriptions to any amount 
you will then be independent of government routine and the public will without further delay have an opportunity of testing the value of your invention towards which the eyes of all europe are anxiously turned at the present juncture let his end those suggestions and the evidence afforded by them of a widespread sympathy in his efforts to render a last great service to his country afforded real satisfaction to lord dundonald but their adoption was quite impossible as a british officer he could not for a moment think of entering upon a warlike project independently of the state therefore he left the work on which his heart was set undone and soon though by no means so soon as he could have made it the russian war was brought to a conclusion whatever may have been the cause of the rejection of his offer to hasten that conclusion by means of his secret war plans the earl of dundonald experienced no lack of personal courtesy during the period of correspondence or throughout the brief remainder of his life his closing years were cheered by many acts by which was nearly completed the tardy reparation for the former injuries which had begun with his reinstatement in the navy by king william the fourth and in which the most gratifying circumstance of all was the restoration of his honours as a knight of the bath by her gracious majesty queen victoria the death of sir byron martin and the promotion of sir william gage to the office of vice-admiral of the united kingdom wrote sir james graham on the twenty third of october eighteen fifty four vacate the appointment of rear-admiral it is an honorary distinction and your standing in the naval service and your gallant achievements entitle you to this reward i have taken her majesty's pleasure and the queen has graciously approved my recommendation i propose therefore with your lordship's permission that you shall be gazetted rear-admiral of the united kingdom i accept the proposed honour with gratitude to her majesty and with thanks to you answered lord dundonald on the twenty fourth permit me however to express a hope that such distinction shall not preclude my further service to the crown and country which long and matured consideration on professional subjects assures me i could now perform even more effectually than at an earlier period the letter ends. a month later he was honoured by a compliment from one who kind and gracious in all his acts had never failed in showing towards him special grace and kindness my dear lord wrote prince albert on the twenty sixth of november a vacancy has occurred in the honorary brethren of the trinity house by the lamented death of sir brian martin it has always been customary in that corporation to have the royal navy represented amongst the elder brethren by one of its most distinguished officers i therefore write to inquire whether it would be agreeable to you to be elected a member of that body as i should in that case have much pleasure in proposing as master of the corporation your name for the election of the elder brethren believe me always my dear lord yours truly albert may it please your royal highness lord dundonald wrote in reply on the twenty seventh to accept my dutiful and most grateful thanks for the honour your royal highness is pleased to confer i assure your royal highness i shall ever look forward with anxiety to prove my devotion and gratitude to her most gracious majesty for signal acts of justice and favour and to your royal highness for this highly appreciated mark of your consideration Later ends. a token of the estimation in which lord dundonald was at length held by all classes of his countrymen may here be recorded after frequent refusal on the ground of his age and love of privacy he consented in may eighteen fifty six to seek admission to the united service club its members thereupon at once resolved at the proposal of vice-admiral sir george f seymour which was seconded by lieutenant-general sir c f smith to invite that highly distinguished officer admiral the earl of dundonald to become an honorary member of the club until the time of his lordship's ballot takes place in spite of compliments like these however it was his earnest desire that 
before his life was ended every shadow which had darkened it might be cleared away and that he might not pass into the grave without the assurance that he was formally and in every respect acquitted of the unjust charges brought against him nearly half a century before while one single consequence of those charges remained in force he considered that he was not so acquitted and with this object he laboured to the last i venture to remind your lordship he wrote to lord palmerston on the twenty sixth of may that the undeviating rectitude of my conduct through a long life has already induced the crown in the exercise of its justice to restore my rank and honours there yet remains my dear lord a gracious and important act to perform namely to order my banner to be replaced in king henry the seventh's chapel and to direct the repayment of the fine inflicted by the court of king's bench and the restoration of my half-pay suspended during my removal from the naval service unless these are done i shall descend to my grave with the consciousness not only that justice has not fully been done to me but under the painful conviction that its mission will be construed to the injury of my character in the estimation of posterity independently of the justice of this claim on its own merits i venture to express a hope that your lordship will admit that during my temporary absence from the naval service my exertions tended materially to promote the interests of our country by opening to commerce the ports of the pacific and those of all the northern provinces of brazil the appeal was unsuccessful the part of it having reference to the replacement of lord dundonald's banner in westminster abbey was considered by lord palmerston to be a question with which it was not in his province to deal with regard to the fine he said i am afraid that there are no funds out of which it could be repaid and i should doubt there being any precedent for such a proceeding and i find on inquiry that pay or half pay has not been granted to any naval officer for any period during which he may have been out of the service that reply induced lord dundonald to write again to lord palmerston on the seventh of june i submit he then said that the fine being imposed for an alleged offence of which i was wholly innocent it ought to be repaid even if there be no special fund appropriated for such a purpose the peculiarity of my case may account for there being no precedent for such a proceeding if none there be the same peculiarity may distinguish my case from that of all other naval officers to whom no pay or half pay has been allowed for any period during which they may have been out of the service i may have been the only naval officer unjustly expelled and assuredly i have been the only one so expelled after manifesting by various acts a truly patriotic zeal for the honour and interest of our country no other naval officer after such acts was ever expelled the service and otherwise punished on mere conjectural evidence since demonstrated to have been utterly groundless i submit that instances have occurred of military officers recovering pay or half pay after unjust expulsion as in the case of sir robert wilson and i am not aware of the existence of any cause for a distinction in this respect between the two services i feel the deepest gratitude and satisfaction that my life has been spared to a period when i may reasonably hope that a portion of justice yet due to me for the erroneous verdict and its injurious consequences will not be withheld of that justice the first instalment namely the restoration of my naval rank was granted by his late majesty king william and the second by her present most gracious majesty who on the representation of my noble friend the marquess of lansdowne was pleased to reinstate me in the order of the bath for the third and conclusive portion of the justice still remaining due to me i cannot desist from looking to your lordship letter ends it is not necessary to detail the later correspondence that ensued upon this subject lord dundonald found that the final reparation which he sought was not then at any rate to be conceded to him by the government and therefore he resolved to employ his last remaining powers in seeking from his countrymen 
that thorough justice which he rightly considered would result from an honest review of the incidents of his life during eighteen fifty eight and the beginning of eighteen fifty nine he was engaged in the preparation of his narrative of services in the liberation of chile peru and brazil from the spanish and portuguese domination footnote the following letter dated buckingham palace march the fourth eighteen fifty nine gave pleasure to lord dundonald my lord i have received the commands of his royal highness the prince consort to return you his best thanks for the copy of your narrative which you have been good enough to send to his royal highness and upon which his royal highness will place a high value i am directed further to say that it would add materially to that value if you would have the kindness to write in the first page of the accompanying volume that it was presented by your lordship to the prince i have the honour to be my lord your most obedient humble servant c b phipps Reader's note, footnote end. that work was immediately followed by his autobiography of a seaman of which the first volume was completed in december eighteen fifty nine the second in september eighteen sixty bringing down the story to the date from which it has been continued in the present work footnote almost the last letter written by lord dundonald was this to lord brougham my dear lord brougham i have the pleasure to forward you the second volume of my autobiography in which you will find that use has been made of the kind expressions towards myself contained in your works of the injustice done to me i need not tell you who are so well acquainted with the subject if the accompanying volume succeeds in impressing on the public mind these sentiments so unflinchingly set forth in your works it will have answered its purpose and that it will do so i have no reason to doubt now that the subject can be canvassed apart from political rancour i am my dear lord brougham ever faithfully yours dundonald lord brougham's answer was dated from paris on the thirty first of october the very day of his friend's death i have just received your very kind letter and i dare say the volume will very speedily reach me one thing i fear you do not come down late enough to relate i mean the impression made upon all present when i took you to the tuileries and when the name of cochrane so well known to them and which i cannot bring myself to change for your present title was no sooner heard than there was a general start and shudder i remember saying as we drove away that it ought to satisfy you as to your disappointment at basque roads and you answered that you would rather have the ships Reader's note, footnote ends. that his mind was full of vigour to the last is best proved by that autobiography but the body was worn out after two years of great physical suffering passed in the house of his eldest son at queensgate kensington he died on the thirty first of october eighteen sixty eighty-five years old he was buried in westminster abbey where in his last moments he had expressed a desire to rest in company with other great servants of the nation a public funeral was not granted to him but his son was permitted to conduct that funeral in a way worthy of his great reputation and agreeable to the wishes of all classes of his countrymen through the personal intervention of her most gracious majesty and the prince consort moreover who counteracted the efforts of subordinates his insignia of the order of the bath which had been ignominiously spurred from king henry the seventh chapel one and fifty years before were restored to their place on the thirteenth of november thus his last and most cherished wish was fulfilled and another precious boon was added to the many favours for which his family can never cease to be grateful to their sovereign and her noble husband the burial was on the fourteenth of november the pallbearers were admiral sir george seymour the brazilian minister admiral grenfell who five and thirty years before had been associated with lord dundonald in securing the independence of brazil captain goldsmith captain schomberg captain hay and captain nolloth among the mourners was lord brougham who had come from paris to render this last honour 
to one who had been his friend through fifty years standing over the grave and looking round upon the assemblage he exclaimed no cabinet minister here no officer of state to grace this great man's funeral but the funeral was graced by the reverent homage of hundreds gathered within the abbey walls and of the thousands who though absent acknowledged that england had lost one of her bravest warriors and most unselfish patriots one whose warfare had been marked by acts of daring rarely equalled and whose patriotism had brought upon him suffering such as few in modern times have had to endure the solemn anthem chanted over his grave his body is buried in peace but his memory shall live for ever echoed far and wide and awakened in every breast keen sentiments of sympathy for what he had borne and of pride in what he had done Reader's note poem begins ashes to ashes lay the hero down within the grey old abbey's glorious shade in our walhalla ne'er was worthier laid since martyr first won palm or victor crown tis well the state he served no farthing pays to grace with pomp and honour all too late his grave whom living statesmen dogged with hate denying justice and withholding praise let england hide her face above his tomb as much for shame as sorrow let her think upon the bitter cup he had to drink heroic soul branded with felon's doom a sea king whose fit place had been by blake or our own nelson had he been but free to follow glory's quest upon the sea leading the conquered navies in his wake a captain whom it had been ours to cheer from conquest on to conquest had our land but set its wisest worthiest in command not such as hated all the good revere we let them cage the lion while the fire in his high heart burnt clear and unsubdued we let them stir that frank and forward mood from greatness to self-consuming ire the fret and chafe that wait on service scorned justice denied and the truth to silence driven from men we left him to appeal to heaven gainst fraud set high and evidence suborned we left him with bound arms to mark the sword given to weak hands left him with working brain to see rogues traffic and fools rashly reign where strength should have been guide and honour lord left him to cry aloud without support against the creeping things that eat away our wooden walls and boast as they betray the base supporters of a baser court the crawling worms that in corruption breed and on corruption batten till at last mistaken honour the proud victim cast out to their spite to writhe and pant and bleed under their stings and slime and bleed he did for years till hope into heartsickness grew and he sought other seas and service new and his bright sword in alien laurels hid nor even so found gratitude but came back to england bankrupt save of praise to eat his heart through weary wishful days and shape his strength to bearing of his shame till slow but sure drew on a better time and statesmen owned the check of public will and at the last light pierced the shadow chill that fouled his honour with the taint of crime and then they gave him back the knightly spurs which he had never forfeited the rank from which he ne'er by ill-deserving sank more than the lion sinks for the yelp of curs
Justice had lingered on its road long, the lion was grown old, the time gone by, when for his aid we vainly raised a cry to save our flag from shame, our decks from wrong. The infamy is theirs whose evil deed is past undoing. Yet not guiltless we who, penniless, that brave man could not see, restored to honour, but denied its meed. A Belisarius old and sad and poor, to our shame, not to his, so he lived on, till man's allotted fourscore years were gone, and scarcely then had leave to establish sure proofs of his innocence and their shame that so wronged him, and this done came death, to seal the assurance of his dying breath and wipe the last faint tarnish from his name. At last his fame stands fair and full of years, he seeks that judgment which his wrongers all have sought before him, and above his pall his flag replaced at length waves with his peers. He did not live to see it, but he knew his country with one voice had set it high, and knowing this, he was content to die and leave to gracious heaven what might ensue. Ashes to ashes, lay the hero down. No nobler heart e'er knew the bitter lot to be misjudged, maligned, accused, forgot, twine martyr's palm among his victor's crown. Footnote. These lines by Mr. Tom Taylor were published in Punch. Victor and Martyr, those are the words fittest to be inscribed on the monument that will be set up in the hearts of Englishmen in honour of the Earl of Dundonald, entering life with great powers of mind and great physical endowments for his only fortune. He made his name famous and won immortal honour for himself by daring and successful enterprises in the naval service of his country, which none have surpassed at any age so young as his, and which few have rivalled during a long lifetime spent in war. But he sought to follow up those triumphs of his prowess on the sea by peaceful victories at home over private jealousy, official intrigue, and political wrongdoing, and thereby he brought on himself opposition which, boldly resented, caused the unjust forfeiture of the rewards that were his due, and weighed him down with the terrible load of disappointed hope and undeserved reproach. Seeking relief from those grievous offerings and opportunity of further work in a profession very dear to him, and in generous aid of nations striving to throw off the tyranny to which they had long been subjected, he entered the service of three foreign states in succession, but in helping others he brought only fresh trouble on himself. He rescued Chile and Peru from Spanish thraldom only to find the people, who he had freed therefrom, were themselves enthralled by passions which even he could do nothing to overcome, and which drove him from their shores barely thanked and quite unrecompensed. He fought the battles of the young empire of Brazil against Portugal, doubled her territories, and more than doubled her opportunities of future development, only to be cruelly spurned by the faction then in power, and denied the fulfilment of national pledges, which a latter generation has but tardily and slightly regarded. Hardy yet was his treatment by the Greeks, who, having asked him to lead them in their contest with their Turkish masters, refused to follow his leadership, gave him no assistance in his plans for fighting on their behalf, and in return for services which, in spite of all the difficulties in his way, he was able to render them, offered him little but insult. Thus, more than half his life was wasted, wasted as far as he himself was concerned, though the gain to others from every one of his achievements was great indeed. Returning then to peaceful work in England, he chiefly spent the years remaining to him in efforts to win back the justice of which he had been deprived, and in efforts yet more zealous to benefit his country by exercise of the inventive talents in which he was 
almost as eminent as in his warlike powers but those talents were slighted though from them has in part resulted an entire and wholly beneficial revolution in the science and practice of naval warfare and though many of his personal wrongs were redressed he was allowed to die without the complete wiping out of the stain that had been put upon his honour of the long course of suffering it must be admitted he was himself in some measure the cause endowed as few others have been endowed with the highest mental qualities he lacked other qualities necessary to worldly advancement and the prosperous enjoyment of life truth and justice he made the guiding principles of all his actions but he knew nothing of expediency and was no adept in the arts of prudence unrivalled strategy was displayed by him in all his warlike enterprises but against the strategy of his fellow workers he was utterly defenceless he made enemies where a cautious man might have made friends and he allowed those enemies to assail him and to inflict upon him injuries almost irreparable with weapons and by onslaughts which a cautious man would easily have warded off judged by the harshest rules of worldly wisdom however it must be acknowledged that these faults brought upon him far heavier punishment than he merited and perhaps it will be deemed by posterity that they were faults very nearly akin to virtues the same want of prudence caused trouble to him in other respects it led him in furtherance of the inventions and other projects by which he sought to benefit the world into expenses by which his scanty sources of income were very heavily taxed it also sometimes made him the victim of others guileless himself he was not proof against the guile of many with whom he came in contact every kind word sounded in his ear every kind act appeared in his eye as if it proceeded from a heart as full of kindness as his own and he often lavished sympathy and gratitude on unworthy objects but shall we blame him for this kindness indeed was as much a characteristic of him as valour while the world was full of fame for his warlike achievements all who came within the circle of his acquaintance marvelled to find a man so simple so tender so generous and so courteous when he was bowed down by sorrows that nearly crushed him he sought comfort in zealous efforts for alleviating the sufferings of others fortunate circumstances would have placed him in a station of universal honour which he could have occupied to the admiration of all onlookers but the circumstances of his life were unfortunate and therefore he had to endure such hardship as falls to the lot of few the harsh judgment by which he suffered has already been reversed it will be atoned for when his worth is properly acknowledged by his fellow men. End of chapter 30. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Gold Coast, Australia.